I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman, and it is such a joy today to be joined by someone whose book I've been anticipating for years. We've been talking about it. Um, Tomi Obaro is an editor at BuzzFeed News. She lives in Brooklyn. Her debut novel is called Dele Wed's Destiny. It's so good to see you over Zoom. <laughs> yes, it's good to see you too. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I want to get right into it. I, I think one of the things that sticks out just from a, a title perspective of your novel is that Dele is the first word <laughs> in the title. Um, and yet this book is not even close to being about him at all. Yeah. Tell me, tell me about um, framing it around this kind of wedding invite though. Yeah, I mean, I feel like the, the response from readers so far has been mixed about that. Um, but for me personally, I just thought it would be kind of funny um, to write a book that sort of hinges on a wedding, but isn't actually about the wedding. Um, and like during the time that I wrote it, I was going to a lot of weddings and was, was kind of feeling that pressure of like, you know, is this something that I want for myself? And so sort of like my little, F you to the world was, I guess, to sort of have that bait and switch in a way. Um, and I also wanted to have, and, and I'm realizing that this is also, this has also kind of become a trend um, where we're seeing a lot of Nigerian fiction that will have Nigerian names in the title, um, particularly for sort of like more romance or like commercial mm -hmm. kind of fiction. Um, and so like, I didn't realize that I was like part of a trend, but I guess <laughs> in that way I am. Um, yeah, but I the, the, sorry, the, um, the, the also the trend of like having a verb in the title that seems to be big in fiction all over the place. Um, and, and like I, I've been reading explanations like why that feels 
why action words in a book title makes them feel like more immediate or relatable. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think for me also, like I had written a whole other novel that was also obliquely about a wedding that also had characters named Della and Destiny, where they also weren't the main characters. And so I sort of decided like, what if I just keep the title, but then everything else changes. I um, love the idea of you doing a series in which Della and Destiny keep doing things. And it's not about them at all. <laughs> yeah, that would be fun. <laughs> but, but I read in your author's note, which is where I get all of the good dirt, that the the characters that you do um, get into um, are are loosely based, or maybe not loosely, on on friendships that your mother had. Yes, I would say that they are loosely, very much so, loosely based on 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 those relationships. So yeah, my mom my mom met her two best friends when she was in college in Nigeria, and they've done a really remarkable job of staying in touch. Um, like those women are like my surrogate aunts and like their kids are like my cousins. Um, and it was actually, we went to visit them, my mom and my sister and I, we went to visit one of my aunts who lives in France and we were looking at photo albums. And I just remember thinking like, there's like a story idea here. Um, and so that was sort of the emphasis, but like, I knew like the characters really aren't particularly based on any any of the three of them, especially because like, you know, my, my mom and like her friends are very like good Christian Nigerian <laughs> women. Like, you know, the, it, to the extent that there's drama, it's, it's not really mine to tell. Um, but I did really love that conceit of following three women over many years and sort of seeing how their relationships with one another develop and then also just seeing how they are as mothers. Um, and, and all of that. Yeah. And, and I think it's going to be so generational at some point. Um, the idea of staying in good touch pre-internet is, is just a, a whole other level of commitment. Yeah, definitely. And, and so, and now they have WhatsApp. <laughs> so yeah, tell me a little bit more about the structure because you start in 2015 and then the action goes, you take us back to when the three ladies met. Mm-hmm. And then we're thrown back in 2015 for a little bit. And I'm curious, especially about like, what do you reveal in the first part? What do you indicate happens that has happened in the past? And what, what do you want to tease out? Yeah, I mean, so like I had always conceived of it being a book that would go back and forth in time. I just enjoy reading books like that. And I also like, the. I think the, the ultimate prerogative for me was to enjoy writing it. Cause you know, that's sort of the only thing I could really control. Yeah. Um, and I'm somebody who tends to get kind of bored easily being like writing from the perspective of one character. Mm. So I liked having that ability um, to move around And then I also, I mean, I also just think that it is, you know, interesting to sort of get at or to tease at some of like the traumas that these women face, or like, especially to kind of get some sense of why the relationships between um, Anita and her daughter Remy, and then the relationship between Fumi and her daughter Destiny are the way that they are. And like, why do they approach parenting the way that they do? And so sort of teasing a little bit 
um, why they why Fumi is somebody who's in desperate need of being in control all the time, and why she's somebody who's you know doggedly unromantic, um, and why Anyton is somebody who wants to have this very uh, clear division of of roles between her and her daughter Remy. Um, so that was sort of the impetus for that. I love that. I so in the physical descriptions we're told over and over again that um, Anitan is, is the one you don't notice because Fumi and, um, and Zainab are just so striking. And what I'm wondering, Tomi, is, is that something that Anitan thinks or is this like some the the greater narrative's truth about about their physical uh, characteristics? I mean, I think it's a combination. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think we can't, you know, as much as we love to be in an idealistic world where physical appearance doesn't matter, you know, it does. And there are, especially among women, like clear power advantages to being sure. beautiful. Um, and so, like. Yeah, in a literal sense, the, the character descriptions are apt in that, like, Fumi is light-skinned and, like, mm -hmm. has a kind of body that men find attractive. And Zainab mm -hmm. is dark-skinned, but is also very striking. And Anitala is sort of in the middle. Um, and I also, like, I mean, as far as, like, her her sexual invis invisibility there or, like, the reasons why, like, this isn't really a spoiler because we learned this very early on in the novel. Anitala elopes with her husband. Um, who is sort of like, kind of like a basic white man, essentially. <laughs> um, but like, you know, like that, and that, that's something that definitely resonated with me growing up. Like I grew up in uh, predominantly white spaces and often felt very sexually invisible and really desired to be seen or validated in those ways. And so like for her being noticed or like being considered sexy or like having any, any of that sort of validation was really, like moving and persuasive for her. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I wanted to, I wanted to write about those, you know, those beauty differences sort of like in a, neither in like a, a judgmental way, but just sort of acknowledging the fact that they exist. And I always hated it when I would, you know, talk about my ill luck with men and people would say, oh, but you're so beautiful. And, and I would say like, that's not really the point. It's not a matter of like, it, we're, we're, you know, we're, we're talking about something that is in some ways more societal. Um, so yeah, I, 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 I got that from Anitan and how she carries herself and, um, and of course how head over heels she falls in love with this man who whisks her away to America. And, you know, you, you make sure that we know that this is a young woman who has not seen much of the world at all. Um, tell me about that decision on Anitan's part, in part for, you know, what it says about her, but also like what it does to the narrative. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I was, you know, was interested always sort of in writing a little bit about like that immigration experience. Um, which was one that I sort of encountered in a, in a weird way because I wasn't born in America, but I never lived in Nigeria. So I had this like weird relationship to those two places. 
Um, but certainly, like, I think imagining what her life would be like, like living in this foreign country, the assumptions that people are making about her, the isolation that exists. Um, I wanted to sort of tap into that and explore that a little bit. Um, and, and I think probably the, the biggest aspect too is just like how it affects her relationship with her daughter. Um, and that's certainly something um, where, you know, she is aware of the fact that even just one, that Remy looks very different from the way that she does, like Remy is biracial. Mm -hmm. um, Remy has never been to Nigeria. Remy can't speak Yoruba. Like there are all of these sort of cultural differences that they're forced to navigate. Um, and I think sometimes, especially when immigrants, or I mean, I don't know, this is sort of a generalization, but I, I do think that there are people, young people in their 20s, which is like around the age my parents were when they left Nigeria. It's almost like they don't necessarily even fully understand the weight of the decision to leave. And like, I mean, in some people's cases, they don't necessarily, they think that they're gonna come back first of all. So then they're not even aware that they're gonna be gone so long. But then, you know, there are huge differences that happen with their, when their kids are brought up in a different place. Yeah, and, and you, you make the character of Remy kind of a great stand-in for, say, American readers who, who don't know the ins and outs of Nigerian culture. And so she, she gets to ask questions. We get to see Anatan like knowing what she would expect a daughter to do. And then we get to see Remy being well-intentioned, but perhaps a little naive in, in questioning some, some of the traditions she encounters. Yeah, I mean, I would say that in, in some ways, Remy is like a very kind of unflattering version of myself. Um, oh. Like when I've sometimes gone back to Nigeria, I mean, I wouldn't say that I was as bleed hard or die hard liberal as she is at the time, but definitely sort of like questioning everything, um, I think is sort of like a normal position and I, or not normal, but like one that I was aware of and a perspective that I wanted to offer. And I think like, you know, sort of in writing from the perspective of her mother, for the most part, it was, um, it, it, it was, it was a way that I could kind of get at like, wow, we're so different moms and daughters or whatever, parents and children. <laughs> Without it being, you know, like another to me kind of like, oh, I'm a 20 something, like Nigerian American, where's my place in the world um, kind of story. Yeah. And it's wonderful because Remy does seem so game. Um, and, and it seems like she does, you know, very much want to learn. Um, and so even to the point where, um, one of the things that happens very early on in the book is that Anitan and Zainab are traveling to get to uh, Fumi's home and, and Anitan and Remy take a plane, Zainab takes a bus. On that bus ride, she gets held up at gunpoint. Everybody ends up knowing about this, but Remy. <laughs> yeah. You can, I can see, I feel like I can see the care they're taking with her, the hope that she doesn't get frightened off. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think part of that was just sort of like my relationship with my parents where they tend, they've tended to be, you're on a need to know basis. And I often was like, but I need to know more. Um, and, and, and like, I mean, it's, especially in the beginning of the book, like the anxiety that Anuton feels when she's in the airport is something that every time I go to Nigeria, I feel acutely. And so um, I wanted to sort of be aware of that. And I think for me, even now, you know, things in Nigeria aren't great. In some ways they're getting worse. Like the, you know, the effects of like whatever is going on in the world economy is, you know, it's, it's felt even more acutely in a place that has so much inequality and poverty. Um, and so as a result, like crime is really up. And so I think even now, like, I think I have, it's, you know, it's just this like weird tension where it's like, I would love to go back, but like the thought of going back right now really freaked me out a bit. Um, and so I think that it was also sort of something that throughout the novel, I was kind of exploring um, is just like the tenuousness of, of security and safety there um so yeah 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 um and I do feel like one of one of the things I really love and, and I'm wondering about intentionality is that you really do bring the setting to life and um we hear great dialogue we hear about all kinds of food that you know there are no explanations for say white ladies like me um, about what what that food might be, how it tastes. But I also have a phone <laughs> that I could easily Google all of the foods that you describe. And so I did, and um, it looks wonderful. Tell me about, um, guiding the reader through Nigeria, um, knowing that perhaps some like me are um, not familiar. Yeah, I mean, I would say that it was, it was a, a balancing act because I truthfully also didn't feel, like in some ways the big sort of like risk or the thing that was exciting, but then also scary about writing this book was deciding to inhabit the point of view of women who had grown up in Nigeria. Um, like, I don't, I don't really speak any Yoruba. So like, I mean, I literally had friends who spoke Yoruba go through and be like, is that how you would say it? Or like, you know, the pigeon here, is, is that what you would use? Um, so in some ways it was also like, that it also made the writing fun. I think like just being able to do some, like allowing myself to speak with authority and then also you know, exploring or reminiscing. Um, and like so much of, of that book, especially um, when I was first writing it in New York and I was, you know, was far away from my parents, was like thinking about food that I lo love and like missed and wanted. Um, so yeah, those scenes tended to be fun to write. Um, and then, yeah, I also, I mean, I, I didn't want it to feel like a book, you know, like when I think about I don't really think that there's like an ideal reader for this book. I think ideally everyone could come away um, with, with, you know, some, some thoughts or like perspective. Um, but I definitely didn't want to be like imagining like a young or like any sort of like right reader, like being like, and what is this and what is that? So I, mm -hmm. I tried as much as possible um, to, to sort of like provide some context clues. Um, but like, yeah, I, I didn't want it to be something 
where where it seemed like the focus was like on trying to explain everything and like even the decision to not italicize the Yoruba was something you know like I think historically in the past you know if if something is written in, a, in another language you italicize it and it makes it glaringly clear that like mm-hmm. it's not English or like it takes you out of the novel in a way um and that that was something I didn't want to do here I appreciate that and and yeah I mean same with um writing in Yoruba that we we are so able now to google whatever we want whatever we need to um understand a book better that it, it doesn't we don't need our hands to be held um especially if this book may not be firstly for us um but do talk a little bit about actually describing the the wedding um and what the characteristics of a big fat Nigerian wedding and um how that moves the story along yeah, I mean, that was that was sort of a bear. Um, I did, I watched a lot of YouTube videos to sort of like remind myself of um, the process of Yoruba engagement ceremonies, because even though I've gone to like a fair number of, of weddings, usually either, either it was like a different, a, one of the two people was a different ethnic group, so their customs are slightly different, mm-hmm. or I was just like too young to remember what was actually going on. Um, so a lot of it was like watching different compilations. Like the one thing about like Nigerians who have money is they'll pay an exorbitant amount of money to like get videographers to like stream these like incredibly ridiculous wedding videos. And so I was able to sort of use that as a baseline in terms of like, okay, this would be the order of events. Um, and then a lot of it was just, yeah, sort of filling in in other parts. And I mean, a lot of it is really, like, I think it's, it can feel so, I think to American or like to non-Nigerian or non-African readers, sometimes like certain Nigerian, that like contemporary Nigerian culture can be so heavily gendered in a way that even though America is certainly not, you know, a utopia of gender mm-hmm. equality, there's just certain things that it just, I don't even know how to describe it. It can just be, it can be almost like shockingly retrograde. Um, and so like, I wanted to be kind of like honest about those aspects too. Um, but honestly, America can be the same way. So let me not act as if like, I think it's just more like living in, in my like, you know, progressive New York bubble, you know, um, it can feel like, wow, really? Like that's what we're doing. Those are the jokes we're making. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that aspect of, uh, I mean, I always knew, like, even before I, I had a, a, a sense of, like, like, I knew that when I wanted, when I decided I wanted to write fiction in some ways, I was like, I feel like a Nigerian wedding would be an interesting setting for some kind of drama. I wasn't yet sure of what. So I always sort of knew that inherently there was something dramatic there. Um, so that's why I went for it. Yeah, and even just the explaining to Remy um, why there are two nights of celebrations is something to really consider. Um, 
for for listeners will you tell tell us oh, oh why oh why they're too so i mean it's become sort of like a uh with the advent of colonization and then also honestly i think like capitalism in general it's sort of become popular to have you'll have a traditional wedding which is where people will wear like traditional clothing um like african like geles and like abadas and this whole thing and you'll have like mcs who presided over the proceedings so you have one representing the bride's family one representing the groom's family and it's sort of mimicking the way that weddings would have taken place quote unquote, in the olden days where the, the groom's family visits the bride's village and is like, we want to marry your daughter. And then there's negotiations and there's a dowry and then the wedding takes place. So that's something that still happens, that still often happens um, among like Nigerians who, who have money. Um, and, then, and then there'll be like the white wedding or the church wedding Sometimes, like sometimes it's the next day, it'll be like on the same weekend. Um, but then other times like the traditional wedding will happen like months before and then the church wedding or Christian wedding will happen like afterwards. It's a good amount of celebrating at least. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I do think that from the perspectives of the three women narrators, we get, such different views about what marriage is or can be. Do you want to talk about that, please? Yeah, I mean, I think, I guess in some ways, this book offers a somewhat dim assessment of marriage, even though I think it's, I have, I'm more, well, am I more optimistic? I don't know. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think certainly for, um, a lot of Nigerian women, I mean, there is, or at least, so like in Flumi's case, she marries essentially for security. She marries somebody who has money and who she feels like knows will provide for her. And she doesn't expect him to be faithful. And he's not really, you know, a, a confidant her or her equal in certain ways. Um, Zainab is, is the person who's closest to having what is actually a healthy marriage. Um, you know, but then it's just sort of like life happens and then she's caring for someone who has a stroke. And then with Anita, um, her marriage is just sort of complicated. And like, I mean, I think that that she sacrifices a lot of herself and is almost too young to realize it until after the fact. Um, and so, and this isn't a spoiler either, but yeah, in the beginning of the book, she's planning on divorcing Charles. and sort of like I think finally kind of trying to figure out who she is on her own um and I would say I mean in general I think marriages around the world as you know they weren't always they weren't usually aren't still usually romantic endeavors and so I think sort of being aware of that um was sort of like my the sort of the idea I had going into it mm-hmm. uh, but uh yeah, but it, also I just didn't really want to like, even though, you know, yes, like a wedding is sort of like the the hinge moment or hinge point of the novel. I didn't really, I mean, it like it matters, but also it doesn't. Like I really did want the central focus to be on on the relationships between the three women. And it's it's telling then that that um none of the women really had a um big fat wedding themselves. Before we 
go, Tomi, would you like to recommend some books for us? Sure. Um, well, so I this book came out a while ago, but I had never read it. And it's sort of like a classic, uh, Nervous Conditions by Sidsi. I'm going to butcher her name, unfortunately, Dangaremba. Um, came out in like the late 80s about a young girl growing up in what was then called Rhodesia and sort of her coming of age. And she's just, a, she's a fascinating character. It's very kind of like abrasively written and like it starts very memorably where she's like, I didn't cry when my brother died. Um, and so I just, I really, I really liked the perspective that it offered. And it's also just very frank about um, like the conditions for women during that time and in that, in that place. Um, another book that came out this year that I really liked, um, which is also, I realized a gray wolf book is if an Egyptian cannot talk or cannot speak, let me just double check, I wrote it down. If, if an Egyptian cannot speak English by Noor Naga. Um, and it's about two unnamed protagonists who meet in Cairo after the Arab Spring. Um, and one of them is a wealthy English American, uh, Egyptian American woman who's teaching English in Cairo. And the other one is this photographer who like filmed the Arab Spring and now has a cocaine addiction. Um, and they meet, and it's just in terms of form, it's just very like interestingly written. Um, the first section begins with like rhetor rhetorical questions, I think, or like, it's just it, the way that it's written is not very straightforward. And then the third section is kind of like a surprise and it makes you like question everything that happened beforehand. Ooh, I but love I, a third section surprise. <laughs> yeah. And I think what made it, I mean, like, I'm just always drawn to, to stories about like the that dynamics between like hyphenated folks or like people who left their homeland and who come back and people who don't. And so I appreciated the book for that perspective. Um, and then I think the last book I would recommend what, uh, would be this, The Sex Lives of African Women um, by Nana Dekoy Sekinyama. It came out, I think, last year. Well, did it come out this year? Maybe it did. I think it did. But it's basically um, this woman interviewed a bunch of women um, about their sex lives. And it's the results are really fascinating. Like she talks to like this woman in her 70s who's who identifies as polyamorous, who lives in Senegal. She talks to a woman who um, basically converted to Islam and like is somebody's third third wife, talks to like queer women, trans women. Um, and it's just like very frank dialogues about sex in a way that like, it feels sort of amazing that they were willing to be that candid with her. Um, and so I really enjoyed reading that as well. That's wonderful. Tomi, thank you so much. Dele Wed's Destiny, we'll read it. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.